0: The first song that we sang this morning was taken identically from 2 Timothy 1, verse number 12. And as you and I sang that, what a song of confidence and what a song of reassurance. Paul said, I know whom I believed and am persuaded that he is able to keep that which I have committed unto him against that day. Isn't that a wonderful thought to voice that kind of confidence? To speak with assurance, I know whom I believed. It's so good to see each and every person here today. I hope that we are each able to participate and to be encouraged by our worship and to encourage all of those who are about us as well. Most of all, we can magnify the great cause of the God of heaven. You may have already noted in the course of the bulletin, the following question is asked, Why be a faithful Christian? I believe it's entirely fair to devote some time, some attention, to reflecting upon not only that question, but also some answers that the Word of God provides us to it. As we do that today, may I continue the thought I had raised a moment ago by saying I hope that this will even give you and me more confidence, more reason, more motivation that we might be a faithful Christian. As we begin all of that, may I say that this introductory slide will not only state what no doubt is obvious, but it will also more directly ask the question again. If it's the case the Christian life brings its problems and brings about the matters of difficulty that are connected with it, including persecution, then why be a faithful Christian? You and I, no doubt, have known of others about us who have made the decision like Demas did, it isn't worth it. (laughs) They basically have gone back and have chosen a way of life that's not the same as what the Christian life is. For them, it wasn't worth it. Why is it worth it? Why be a faithful Christian? Over the next few moments this morning, as we reflect upon that question, may I first more carefully state the difficulties surrounding it. And that's what this next slide is all about. I've tried to pull together a few passages of Scripture that will invite you and me to notice and observe some very careful, but very directly presented truths to all of us. There are some things the Christian life will clearly mean. You and I live in this world. Even Jesus made that observation in John the 17th chapter. With regard to the apostles, they have to live in this world. You and I can't go out of it yet. As long as we're in the flesh, we're in this world. Isn't it true then that that connection led Paul to say in 1 Corinthians 6, if you're in the world, obviously this is where we're going to live. But now with that it said, we must never be of it. That which the world approves and that which the world condones and that which the world lifts high and that which the world proclaims as normal and acceptable, the Christian can't do it. The Christian simply cannot do it. You can think about any number of things. The world has no problem with whatever you want to drink. The Bible says we have to have a problem with it. The world says it doesn't matter what you wear or choose not to. The Bible says the Christian can't be that way. The world can say choose as your priorities whatever you want to choose. In fact, if it's making money, a lot of people will go right along with you. But the Bible says you can't do that. And therefore, that led me at the top of the slide to say, a faithful Christian must maintain a separation from the world. Verses like these come so rapidly to the forefront. The book of James is a five-chapter book in the New Testament, and you and I might recall that the book of James in many ways is the New Testament book of Proverbs. It has powerful but briefly presented truths. And in James 4 verse 4, The inspired writer said, You adulterers and adulteresses, know ye not that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Whosoever therefore will be a friend of the world is the enemy of God. Now that's powerful. And that challenges every one of us. There's nobody exempt from that. Because there is a regarded norm in this world, and the world loves to approve what is its norm. Dress like everybody else, go where everybody else goes, do what everybody else does. That's what everybody likes to do for the most part. But the Christian can't. Because what the world condones and approves and loves, the Bible says, God hates it. It's enmity with God. Hadn't it always been true in the words of 1 John 2, 15, "'Love not the world.'" "...neither the things that are in the world, for all that's in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life, it's not of the Father, but is of the world. And the world passeth away, and the lust thereof, but he that doeth the will of God abideth forever." 1 John 2, 15-17. And so this powerful recognition that there is the world, and the way the world does things, but the Christian must be unique and separate and different. That's a constant and daily question. Am I different? Are you? When those who know you and me, do they see something different in our behavior? Do we dress differently? Do we talk differently? Is that which we lift high and respect different? If it isn't, you and I have a problem. Because we are not separated from the world. And Paul would say in 2 Corinthians 6 verses 15 and following, that those who are separated from the world are the very ones on whom God has shared forth the power of His promise and the nature, of course, of all that comes with it. Maybe it is in that regard the next step on that slide is this. That distinction is highlighted in 1 Peter chapter 4. Now It's true that some of that which is highlighted there will merely be a summary of what I've already invited you to note, but could I read it? In 1 Peter the 4th chapter, if I could in fact make a mention of the background, Peter was writing to some particular saints who were dispersed abroad. And they found themselves, no doubt, in very challenging circumstances. And this is what he said. Beginning in verse 1, "...For as much then as Christ hath suffered for us in the flesh, arm yourselves likewise with the same mind. For he that hath suffered in the flesh hath ceased from sin." that he no longer should live the rest of his life or his time to the flesh, to the lusts of men, but to the will of God. For the time past of our life may suffice us to have wrought the will of the Gentiles when we walked in lasciviousness, lusts, excess of wine, revelings, banquetings, and abominable idolatries, wherein they think it strange that you run not with them to the same excess of riot, speaking evil of you. Isn't that interesting? As Peter wrote to those folks, you'll notice there was a time in life when we did these things. But we don't now. And therefore those that we know may well ask, why don't you do this? Why don't you come and do what you once did with me? Can't we go here or there or enjoy this or that? And you'll note it, verse 4 says, they think it's strange. You don't do this anymore. What about the Christian life and its uniqueness, its separation, its difference, if you please? You'll notice he listed several things. Wouldn't you be quick to note in verse number 3, a lot of it had to do with things you drink. Now the ancient world had its access to matters which the person of God has no business drinking. But obviously it was easily gotten. It was fairly, of course, easy to obtain it. They think it's strange you don't do this anymore. Now maybe I don't speak before anybody today who once had an issue with alcohol, but I hope we're all continually reminded that the Christian life has nothing to do with it. we set before others the banner of giving us to those things God approves. And this is just one verse among others. It's not only excess, He even makes here a condemnation of even the moderate amounts of it. But that isn't all he says. You'll notice the early part of verse number 3. He points out lasciviousness. This whole lifestyle where you follow the passions of the flesh and often sexual connotations go with it. Clearly, modesty is a matter here. People dress, you and I know today, it's terrible how it's presented in public. Nakedness in public purview. Now, the sadness that goes with that, the Christian just doesn't do it. We understand we have a higher calling than that. And we appreciate that that which goes with it is a connection that's far richer and more supreme. Surely, in that regard, you'll note about the middle of that slide with me, these behaviors that Peter highlighted, Paul amplified something similar in 1 Corinthians 6, verses 9 to 11. Without revisiting that in its detail, wasn't it true there? Paul again gave a listing of certain things and then he said, you were this at one time, but you are not now. And among that list, there were some drunkards, there were some fornicators, there were even homosexuals, but they had changed. You see, you aren't born a homosexual. You choose that way of life. And Paul said, you're no longer that way. Isn't that a wonderful thing to appreciate? that people can change, and there is repentance. All of that now leads us to see. You and I know the world loves these things. Why be a Christian? Why choose the narrow road that leads to a different place? Why choose the narrowness, the straightness, the challenge and difficulty that goes with it? As you close that slide with me, isn't it fair to say that we're ready to look very briefly at just a few of the Bible's answers to this question. As we develop them, here's the first one. Why be a faithful Christian? We've already noted in that text, Brother Wayne read a minute ago. The church at Smyrna in Revelation 2 verse 10, Be thou faithful unto death. Why? He had just told them, you're about to be cast into prison. That doesn't sound like fun. It doesn't sound pleasant in the slightest. Why be a faithful Christian if this is what's going to happen? First reason, the death of our Lord. The appreciation that goes with the death of the Master. The understanding that He didn't have to do this of His own will. In other words, it's not something He did just for the joy, the sheer pleasure that went with His own person connected to it. I've stated some of that this way. The Lord's death on the cross is critically connected to what we're talking about today. In John 3.16, For God so loved the world. If that verse stopped right there, think how different it'd be. God so loved the world, all right. But it goes on to say that He gave His only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in Him should not perish but have everlasting life. Now that text asserts to us, God gave. He loved that which is you and me, to the point that He gave His Son. And a Son that died such a heinous and terrible kind of death. You'll notice then that cross displays such an attribute of tremendous love. In Isaiah 53 verses 1 to 6, You and I note carefully there that this proclamation is made. If I could just invite you to note verses 4 and following. For our transgressions, he was wounded. For our iniquities, he was smitten. The Lord hath laid on him the iniquity of us all. It was my sin. It was yours. God put on him. He was scourged because I was a a, a filthy scoundrel. He was crucified because you had chosen to disobey. We're the cause of this. And in so doing, the marvelous death of Christ was a substitution for what ought to have been the case of me. And if He loved me that much, and if He loved you that much, then shouldn't I have an earnestness to listen to the reason He did that? What was He saving me from? From my sin and from myself. As you and I close that slide, surely one of the greatest statements about that would be in the sixth or the fifth chapter of Romans. Beginning in verse number six of that chapter, Paul was able to write to the Roman congregation, and to them he pointed out this For scarcely for a righteous man will one die, yet peradventure for a good man some would even dare to die, but God commendeth his love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. You know, it is true sometimes that somebody may give their life for a good man. Rarely for a religious man, but sometimes for a good man. But God gave His love, His Son, for us when we didn't deserve it. We had chosen to disobey Him. We had chosen to live separate and apart from Him. We had willfully chosen to do this. One of the greatest issues that troubles The whole discussion here is there are some who think that people are born in sin. We're not. None of us are. I sin because I choose to, every time. And you sin because you choose to, every time. Nobody makes me. There is no force beyond my control that demands it of me. I choose it every time. And that's what makes it so sad. The Lord hanged on the cross, and time and again, I and you choose... To sin, The death of Christ, though, is only one reason that motivates us to be faithful. I hope that on Mondays and Tuesdays and, yea, the various days of the week, when we find ourselves in the various chores and tasks and places of life that we'll give thought to the Lord's death and how it motivates us to be faithful and it motivates us to be true and loyal to Him in every way, Because number two that we'll consider this morning is this. Just as surely as the Lord died, He was making it possible for me and you to be somewhere. Now we're born into this earth and we live here for a while. But we know that this life is only a small, small part of our total existence. When you and I die, we're still going to live somewhere. It won't be in the flesh, mind you, but we shall continue to exist and live. And Jesus wanted to make sure that we live in a place that's pleasant, blissful, glorious, and happy. What about heaven? It's certainly true that the moment we die, we don't go to heaven. The Bible doesn't teach that. But after the day of judgment, but at the moment of that great and noble and powerful time of judgment, we know there's an eternal abode called heaven. Why don't we take just a minute and look at the last couple of chapters of the book of Revelation. I think it'd be fair to say that it's almost as if one last time in all of the 1,189 Bible chapters God wants to jerk us to the point in saying, this is what's at stake. This is why you need to be faithful. This is what it's all about. We surely won't read the fullness of those two chapters, but in Revelation 21, verse number 1 starts like this. And I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth were passed away, and there was no more sea. We surely will have not the time to step through verse by verse and make lots of comments, but it would truly be enthralling if we were. But can I point out to you, the first heaven and first earth were gone. This present earth had been burned up by now. It was no more. And so all the things that sometimes folks love about this earth, it's gone. Why give the fullness of our life living for something that's not going to last? this earth is not going to be permanent. John said, it's gone. But he did say, I saw a new heaven and a new earth. Now, the new earth that he saw was not a remade one of these. Other verses quickly point out that this new heaven and new earth is a new place of abode. It's a new environment, and it's not physical. It's the place where the Spirit's going to be. John, tell us about it, verse 2. And I, John, saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down from God out of heaven, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a great voice out of heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men, and He will dwell with them, and they shall be His people, and God Himself shall be with them and be their God. This new environment where John was now saying, God is there! Now you and I here on earth, physically we're not exactly, you'd say, fully with Him. We know He's among us, and we strive to follow His will. But in presence, in person, He isn't here. He's in heaven, and we're not. But you'll notice John seeing now a spectacle wherein that division is gone. God's people are with Him. Verse 4, God shall wipe away all tears from their eyes. There shall be no more death, neither sorrow, nor crying, neither shall there be any more pain. For the former things are passed away. Those former things, which were characteristic of our life in the flesh, they're not there. Things that bring about crying due to sadness, things that bring about pain, it's just not going to be there. Not only that, there's no more death. Verse number 4 then reminds us that this place to which we've turned our attention, this is a prime motivation to be sure. We all should want to be there and whatever it requires of us here, remaining distant from certain activities, remaining undisclosed in certain things, we ought to be happy to do those things, because we want to go there. You'll also notice, if we jump past a few verses, have you ever thought about what's not going to be in heaven? You know, there are things I know on this earth that bother all of us, because things choices that people make they hurt us and the choosings that they often make we know it's not good for them and we know the kind of heartache that it shall bring in future times and moments but you know there won't be any of that in heaven if I could do so may I direct your attention in the same chapter to verse number 8 but the fearful the unbelieving abominable murderers whoremongers Sorcerers, idolaters, liars, none of them are going to be there. None of them. Now, you and I recognize the kind of hurt that sometimes is brought about again by them, not only to themselves, but to others. And they're not going to be there. Now, our heart hurts for them now to think about the kind of choices they're currently making. But isn't it something to note, verse 27, and there shall in no wise enter into it anything that defileth, neither whatsoever worketh abomination or maketh a lie. for they which are written in the Lamb's book of life. Only those in the Lamb's book will be there. For instance, don't you and I know that certain behaviors are so very hurtful, like jealousy and envy? They're not going to be that there. Backstabbing, Issues of violence connected to anything against God, that won't be there. Every element of falsehood won't be there. Now, all of that is just a small sampling of what won't be there. You can find in every list of the New Testament in which various things that are not pleasing to God and none of those are going to be there. You'll notice then on this slide, there's an incredible sweetness connected to heaven. Not only the thought of who and what's there, but what's not there. I've invited you to consider some of that in the language of Deuteronomy 32.50. Because in that place, you'll notice there's also a statement of a grand reunion. Aren't you a bit excited about the thought of having conversation with Paul or Peter or yea, one of the other apostles, or even some of those of whom we have mentioned, and yet the finest, no doubt, is this. Don't your doesn't your heart thrill at the thought of being able to see Jesus face to face? Now, Thomas wanted to, of course, see the prince in his side and, and, and in his hand, and he was granted that opportunity. And yet you and I also will one day be able, if we're faithful, to live forevermore in the presence of the greatness of the Lord. God's going to be there. The Holy Spirit's going to be there. The book of Revelation describes a whole host of angels and other living creatures that shall be there. And they cry things like this, Holy, 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 Lord God Almighty. Now, as that kind of statement is made in Revelation 4.8, Doesn't it bring us to Revelation 5, 12? Worthy is the Lamb that was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and glory and honor and blessing. The connection then certainly is this. Do you want to go to heaven? Do I? Then live a faithful Christian life. Always, up until the time even of death. That kind of faithfulness is something that you see the New Testament encourages upon us. I close that slide then by urging each of us to know this is a grand reason to be faithful. But of course, another can be listed. The other one you already expect. Not only is it a desire of where we would wish to go, it's the place we would wish not to go. Because also the Bible, in addition to describing in the book of Revelation, this glorious abode that's called heaven... There's also a description of one other possible place of eternity, and it's this place called hell. The Greek word is Gehenna. We find it mentioned several times in the New Testament, and it would seem to me interesting to note the person who mentioned it the most was Jesus. It's almost as if He came to tell us in no uncertain terms, please don't go here. Live faithfully and avoid this place because it is real. I know that our world has come to think that hell is only the figment of some especially religious person's imagination. That surely no loving God will send anybody to a place that's described like this. We can't believe that now because the same God that tells us about heaven and in many cases the same verses that mention one mention the other one. What does He say about this place? You may notice on the slide, I've been fairly brief for good reason. We don't need to say a lot. We have heard so much about it, but we just need to be reminded, it would seem, so that we never, ever forget it. This is why we've got to be faithful. At the day of judgment, can you just imagine the horror? Can you imagine the abject horror of hearing Him say, You were faithful for a while. Why did you walk away from me? Why did you do it? You had my word that told you what I expected of you. Why didn't you do it? We would be left speechless. There would be nothing to say. You see, he's not wrong. It's not as if we can appeal now, maybe you just weren't apprised of the kind of life I live... Seven times in the book of Revelation, to every one of the seven churches of Asia, the Lord said, I know thy works. It's not as if you're pulling anything over my eyes. I know exactly what you are, where you've been, and what you've done. I know your works. He sees you and me so plainly. And in that connection, He tells you and me that there's a place like this. In many ways, the English language struggles to describe this place. The New Testament describes it to us, certainly in a powerful way, but don't we know that really it's worse than what our English language may convey? Here's just a few of the things the Bible tells us about it. First, in Hebrews chapter 10, it is the manifestation of the wrath of God. If God is all-powerful, can you imagine the manifestation of His wrath? what it should be like to be in a place where you feel the full force of that wrath. And yet, in Hebrews chapter 10, that's the very description presented. Not only that, in Revelation 15, 1, in fact, since that one's so close to where we recently were, may I just read how that that verse presents it. And I saw another sign in heaven, great and marvelous, seven angels having the last seven plagues, For in them is filled up the wrath of God. The wrath of God. It's mentioned again in Revelation 16.1. As these angels pour out these vials in these chapters, we are given an impression of what comes about as one receives and experiences the wrath of God. And I know that none of us would wish to be a part of any of that. Not only that. Look at what's next on that slide. Surely one of the things we realize about heaven that makes it so grand is it never ends. It's eternal. The same thing's true of hell. Could I turn your attention to Matthew 25 verse 46? There's a rather amazing play on words. In some ways, rather interestingly stated. As the writer Matthew presented it to us, here's what he wrote. You might recall this is after that scene in which we're given a portrayal of the judgment. And then he says, These shall go away into everlasting punishment. So the these are those who are the disobedient, those that had not done that which was the bidding of the Lord. These, he said, shall go away into everlasting punishment. Note with me the adjective everlasting. And keep it in mind as I finish the verse. But the righteous into life eternal. So on the one hand, there are these that are categorized as the these, the disobedient, but they are contrasted to the righteous. So we have two categories. The these, we're told, went into everlasting punishment, but the others, the righteous, into life eternal. So there's eternal described with respect to one, everlasting described with respect to the other one. You might be impressed it's the same word in Greek. The very same word. If heaven is eternal, so too is hell. The Lord didn't use any different word in any way to describe the duration of either of them. Isn't that a reminder to you and me that this place, this place called Gehenna, never ends. So to be cast there, to find oneself there, there's no way out. There's no way that one can find some hole in the fence to get to a different place, and there's never a reduction in it. Look at the next point on the slide, please, if you would. In Mark 9, verses 43 to 48, it never lets up. I'm sure you're like me that there have been times in life you've had pain. And I know if you're like me, and I'm sure we all do, you just think, another 30 minutes until the medicine kicks in, or until I can get some ease. And we're so thankful when the ease comes. Have you ever burnt yourself really badly? I know that's been quite, quite, quite painful for all of us if you've experienced it. But still, even then you think, oh, at least the salve, at least the ointment. Give me another hour or so, and at least it'll be a little bit easier. And it is. But you know, in hell, there's never a hope for that. I know there's no time, and certainly I can't make reference to years or centuries or millennia, but it doesn't matter how long one might wait. There's no easing of it. That's disturbing, isn't it? And that should be another great motivation. Jesus said, the worm dieth not. Note the verb tense. He said that worm, again, dieth not. The fire is not quenched. Those are present tense continuances. That's almost, again, a terrible, terrible reminder. Two more things on that slide of these. Fire coupled with darkness. And so can you imagine being in a place where there is fire, but it's invisible. There is darkness, but yet the flame is tormenting. It's invisible, however. Now, you and I today realize our firefighting friends, you know, they can see the fires and appreciate where they are but this fire is an outer darkness. Isn't that an interesting consideration? Isn't it a reminder, most of us don't like abject darkness for long periods of time. And yet, the final thought is this. It's a place of hopelessness. All hope is dashed. All hope is no longer. As long as there's life, there's hope. And see, there's complete second death. As you and I close that slide with me, haven't we been motivated? This, this is why to be a faithful Christian. Because of the death of the Master. Because we want to go to heaven. Because we do not want to go to hell. That kind of a reminder is one that is so strong. And it's one that encourages us and does so in the most forceful of ways. Would you and I please examine ourselves whether we be in the faith? To borrow the words of 2 Corinthians 13, 5. If we are in the faith, may we continue to live that way for the reasons we've learned today. But if we're not, it's time to do something about it at once. Don't wait until a better, more convenient day. Remember, in Acts 24, as far as we know, the more convenient season never came. It may not come for you either. Today is the day of salvation. 2 Corinthians 6 verse 2. If you hear His voice, harden not your hearts. Hebrews 3 verse 12. Today, if there's anyone in this assembly, and you're not a faithful Christian, the power is within your capability to be one. The Lord asks that you relinquish control of your life to Him. Obey the gospel. The statement of 2 Thessalonians 1 continues to be forceful in that regard, for all who obey not the gospel will be cast into everlasting punishment. That obedience to the gospel asks, Do you believe Jesus to be the Son of God? Are you convinced He walked upon this earth and that He was the anointed of heaven, that He really was divine? Then upon that belief... Make a change. Make changes in your life as needed. Stop doing the things that need to be stopped. Pursue those things that should be done. Make changes in the way you've spoken, if that's necessary, or the changes in the places you visit, if that's appropriate. Make changes into the way you appear before others, if that's needed. But that kind of change is just called repentance. Then make a verbal confession that you do believe with all your heart that Jesus is the Son of God. And upon that profession will be honored to baptize you into Christ. So you can contact His blood, and that blood will wash away every sin that you've ever committed. Every one of them gone. At that point, you can then live in a powerful, refreshed way and live faithful until death. However, if you have done that at one point and knew the sweetness and the power and honor that that kind of life had, but you have chosen over time to begin to live differently. Maybe you've started doing what you know the Lord doesn't approve. You know you can come back to your first love, Revelation 2.5. You can make repentance of those things that you are doing now that need to be changed. That repentance will certainly need to be met with confession. Not confession of Christ this time, but confession of your sins. Because James 5.16 tells us we need to do that. And we, as a congregation of people, would surround you with our arms of encouragement and appreciation and love and that we could be of assistance to you to encourage you to continue that walk of bravery and courage you've shown today. If we could help in some way in those ways, we would like to use this song of encouragement, this hymn of invitation, And invite one and all, if it be the need in your life that you would come because of the motivation to be a faithful Christian. And right now, if we can help, won't you come while we stand and sing?